And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am here with Mr. Scott H. Gardner. Hello. I think today the H stands for homage. <laughs> there you go. How you doing? Yeah, today? I'm excited about this. I'm I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm very excited for this. Um, I'm not sure yet what we're gonna we're gonna banner this episode or whatever what what we're gonna call these uh, these segments of the show. But to me, this is uh, kind of continuing in the spirit of uh, the focus on feature that we started, and I think we only ever did one episode of. But uh, yes, we I did, like we the did, idea. We did the one focus episode, and it's something we've long said that we wanted to continue and we've long not continued uh, right. so we've decided to make it you know as much as we can a you know a semi-regular feature that we're going to try and do which is kind of the original plan uh and we're going to see if we can actually follow up on it because i think it's a fun aspect of being a collector uh is to you know focus on on different creators and to become a little bit more aware of their history and their work and, and why do we appreciate them the way we do? Uh, or why do we not appreciate them the way we do? Or why, uh, as with our last one with Alan Weiss, why are they like an undiscovered gem? Uh, you know, I think that's going to be kind of a key to this whole series, if we can call it that. And as Scott and I had have discussed, you know, off the recording, uh, we'd like to try and kind of alternate between fairly well-known creators and fairly obscure creators. I don't know if that's going to be, you know, every other time or whatever, but but we don't want it to be, okay, here's a show where we're covering Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, uh, you know, and and, and all, all the big names, and that's it. We, we do want to hit on names that you may not be as familiar with, or I think in this case, what we're doing today, names where you may be familiar with the name and may have a basic familiarity with some of the work but maybe not know the depth of it so yeah. that's kind of the idea that that's a great way to put it because i thought i you know i considered myself very well versed on who we're going to cover today and i was really surprised by all the stuff i learned about him that i didn't know so I, I hope that that you know carries over to the listeners as well and they'll be interested in you know the people that we're that we're going to focus on um so with that, I guess we're <laughs> ready to jump right into it. All right. So the uh, so the focus for this particular episode is Ross Andrew, um, who was uh, uh, an artist uh, in comics, mostly uh, a penciler, um, who had uh, quite a body of work. So I'm just going to kind of start in order of my notes here. We're we're doing this uh, semi chronologically through the man's life, essentially through his work. 
Um, so uh, Ross Andrew was born in, oh my gosh, this is quite the name. I'll see if I can pronounce it. Rostolov and Androv- Androkovich. Does that sound about right? <laughs> Androkovich actually sounds very good. I was thinking Andruchevich, but I think yeah. I think you're pronouncing it probably better. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I'm just yeah, I'm not good with Russian names or, or whatever this uh, this. Yeah, I'm, uh, or, I'm assuming is he's on, on I'm that. assuming he's a first generation American born. Uh, that his, yeah. his parents were probably born in Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah, they but were. That's, definitely, I could be wrong on that. Who knows? I, I don't have that in my notes um, as far as where his parents were from. But yeah, he they they were immigrants. Um, but he was actually born uh, June fifteenth, nineteen twenty seven, in Highland Park, Michigan. So he he was actually born here. Uh, but yes, he was uh, as you say, first generation uh, American of his family. Um, now, Ross Andrew, um, I'm hoping it's a name that, you know, at least some of our listeners are familiar with. Um, he's probably best known for his work on uh, Amazing Spider-Man. That's the, the two things that always come immediately to my mind when I think of Ross Andrew is Amazing Spider-Man and Superman. Um, a lot of this information, I'm going to just be honest, uh, for what we have here uh, is called from, you know, the source of all information, Wikipedia. So some of it might be a little weird and a little wonky, but uh it's funny looking over what I've got here, um, you know, saying what he's best known for, and I added a few things to it. Uh, Superman is not mentioned, and I was kind of surprised to find how little Superman he actually did, although I always think of him in association with Superman. Um, but anyway... I, I think um, that's a combination I mean, of two things. I think it's the, uh, the Superman-Spider-Man crossover, which is iconic. Definitely. Uh, and then I think, you you know, you add to that, that, you know, a lot, he did a lot of Superman cover work, which we were just talking about a little bit off the recording as well. Right. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, the, the Ross Andrew Superman images are burned into your mind. And for that reason, you make a connection as do I, uh, with that character for Ross Andrew that may not be based on volume so much as, uh, just the fact that, you know, you, you saw things that were striking to you or to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah. and, and that's, I think that's, that speaks for his work a little bit. And I think it's worth mentioning that because, you know, if, if he didn't do a lot of it and yet he's imprinted on our minds with it, that means what he did do was very influential. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that, that's the thing that really shocked me was, you know, again, looking over his body of work, and seeing the volume, for one thing, I mean, if, if you pull up his credits on Mike's Amazing World, just his story credits alone, it, it's a mammoth list. I mean, the guy was just a workhorse and, uh, you know, just an incredible volume of work. But then look at his cover credits and, oh, my gosh. And, yeah, you're right. It, 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 that's what it is, is that, you know, he really didn't do a lot of Superman as far as Superman stories. Um, but as you say, it was it was that combination of he did one of the most iconic Superman stories of that era, uh, which, you know, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I mean, that was a, a, a cultural touchstone, you know, and he worked on that. You know, he was the artist on that. Um, and then, you know, again, all those Superman covers. But then also, you know, his entire body of work, <clears throat> pardon me, as artist on Action Comics just happens to be that virus X from Krypton storyline, um, you know, where Superman essentially dies from virus X. And that is one of the greatest Superman stories ever told. And in, in my opinion, 
And, you know, he did the entire arc on that. So, you know, that's the only thing he did. But wow, you know, what an impact. So, yeah, again, I'm just I was just kind of surprised not to see Superman mentioned in his credits. But um, I think they're going more for volume, possibly. Um, but anyway, they, they mentioned, you know, of course, Amazing Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. He had a long run on Wonder Woman, The Flash, The Metal Men. And then, of course, he is the co-creator of The Punisher. Yeah, and his his initial, you know, his initial drawing of Frank Castle as the Punisher. Uh, if you look at, I, I happen to be a, a very proud owner of Spider Man number one twenty nine, uh, and uh. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't think I've cracked it open in thirty years because you know, and it's it's funny that goes with our arguments about slabbing and all that, and it's not arguments because <laughs> we totally agree, but it's it's books like that. It's I probably should get slabbed. Uh, just to protect it because I'm never going to crack it open because it's got too much value, uh, on, you know, and, and I have the ability to, to uh, you know, go through that story in many other forms. So there's really no need for me to open it up. On the other hand, I, I only recently found out I did not know this, and I don't want to veer too far off the topic, but that when you slab a book, the, the fee is not a flat rate. They charge you based on the value of the book, and mm-hmm. that – First of all, that that's going to make me not want to do it because they're going to charge me more. And second of all, it makes – I think it gives even further credence to our arguments of the invalidity of their uh, grading system because the higher grade they give it, the, the more value they could say it has, and therefore the more they can charge you to do it. So yep. uh, the words that come to mind are conflict of interest. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that was a much kinder uh, – a much kinder term than what I had in mind, but yeah. One of these days, I, I, I'm very tempted to do a whole show, uh, I, you know, really making our case against that whole thing. But but we'll see. We're, we've been trying to be more positive with our shows, so I don't know. That would tend to be a, a rather negative <laughs> slant, I guess. But, uh, but continuing on here, uh, so Andrew, uh, Ross Andrew he began his career in the early 50s. And rarely worked on superheroes, but of course, you know, during that time, superheroes weren't the dominant thing in comics. Uh, although he did do a few stories for quality uh, with Doll Man, those were among uh, some of his earliest works. He also uh, uh, he also did the Tarzan newspaper strip at the very beginning of his career, uh, which apparently is how oh, he, okay. uh, how he uh, hooked up with Mike Esposito, who you're going to mention later in your uh, right. Right. Who became, you know, his number one inker. Uh, and they worked on that together. And apparently Andrew had it and then hired uh, Esposito to work with him. Yeah, the bulk of his work uh, in comics, you know, Ross Andrews, is with uh, Esposito. I mean, they were they were one of those teams like, you know, like Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson or like John Byrne and Terry Austin. Uh, you know, they were a regular team uh, almost everywhere that they went. Um, it's funny, later when I cover my book for Ross Andrew, it, it's very ironic to me that it's not uh, Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito, which I didn't realize until I went back to look at the book. But um, but he did work on, you know, just about every other conceivable genre of books, you know, from romance, like uh, things like Young Love and Girls Romance, to strange sci-fi like Marvel Tales. Like, this is not the reprint of Spider-Man Marvel Tales, but the one that was actually like mystery stories and sci-fi stories. 
adventures into weird worlds, uh, spy thrillers and mystery tales and, you know, so on and so on. Um, and lots and lots of war books. And, you know, just to mention a few titles, uh, it was like Battle, All-American Men of War, Our Army at War, uh, Star-Spangled War Stories and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, as we said, you know, very often with his friend and collaborator, uh, Micah Esposito was, who's, you know, was his inker, um, you know, and they worked together on, you know, their projects over four decades, you know, over 40 years. That's, it's just crazy. You know, the amount of work that these guys put out. Mm-hmm. So in 58, um, you know, while also continuing to pump out just a ridiculous amount of war comics, he became regular uh, penciler on Wonder Woman with issue number 98, where he took over from the previous artist who'd actually been on the title since Wonder Woman was created in 1940. And I had never even heard of this artist. He has the very unfortunate name of Harry Peter. I'm not <laughs> making that up. Um, I was just shocked to see. I, I had never even heard of this person. Um, I don't know who I would have said if somebody had asked me, hey, who is the original Wonder Woman artist? I, I don't I don't know. I, I definitely wouldn't have thought of that name, but I just thought that was kind of amusing. Um Andrew would actually work on uh, Wonder Woman for nine years uh, before he left to do uh, The Flash for several years. Um, so some of the notable things uh, pre-coming over to Marvel, um, along with uh, writer-editor Robert Kaniger, uh Ross Andrew co-created several characters and concepts that were big in uh, the late 50s and early 60s, including... The Suicide Squad, which I had no idea. He was a co-creator of The Suicide Squad in 1959 in the pages of Brave and the Bold, number 25. The Metal Men in 1962 in showcase number 37. And he also drew the first 29 issues of when the Metal Men got their own series. Um, and he was a co-creator of the uh, the War That Time Forgot feature in Star Spangled War Stories. Um, now, those were stories that mashed up World War II war stories with dinosaurs on this prehistoric, uh, I think it was even called Dinosaur Island in the South Pacific. And I'm kind of passingly familiar with with some of those stories because I was trying to collect them a while back and they're actually really ridiculously expensive. Um, But I had no idea that he was a a co-creator of that. And uh, also, again, with Conagher, he co-created uh, Rose and Thorn, which was uh, a backup feature in Lois Lane. And um, just to kind of tease a little bit, uh, soon we are uh, we are going to be uh, covering something that will uh, have to do with Rose and Thorn. So keep an ear out for that. So in 1968, again, with uh, Mike Esposito as his inker, uh, Andrew was the artist on... Action Comics, number 362 through 366, and what is very probably, in my opinion anyway, the very best Superman story of the era, Leo Dorfman's Virus X from Krypton storyline. Now, I covered this uh, in very early episodes of my uh, late-lamented Superman podcast. Actually, it's it's not dead. I promise one of these days I'm going to get back to it. Um, I kind of folded it into uh, Back to the Bins. But anyway, uh, it was. Uh, I've got a few things to say about Superman, and, uh, and I covered all of those issues in depth. Uh, it's fantastic. I don't know if it's 
been reprinted or not, which is a shame if it's never been reprinted because it's really great. It deserves to be in the mention of greatest Superman stories ever told. And I think the only reason it's never been reprinted in any of those volumes is because it is like five issues long. So, uh, but it's really yeah, great uh, stuff. If you're for some reason, to. I think that particular run uh, is most commonly known by the covers, which are you know spectacular yes. Neil Adams covers, and they're great. Uh, but the story, yep. the story kind of gets. Uh, buried in in the the shuffle, uh, and and I agree with you. It's it's. I think the first experience I had with that particular story was seeing the covers in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, uh, and and being enamored with it then. And I, I I don't have my list in front of me, but I think I own two of the five issues uh, of that particular series. But it it is really a great storyline and. Uh, just you know, I hate it's it's kind of dour, but I hate this, so I hate to use this word, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. So and and the artwork in it is really good. I mean, it, it's it, it becomes overshadowed by the Kirby, by the uh, Neil Adams covers for some reason, but you, yeah. you need to dig deeper into it, and it should be reprinted somewhere. There should be a trade of that. There's no reason not to. What's funny is I, I have no idea of the value of those, just because you know I own them and I'm not hunting them. But I would suspect that 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 might lend to why maybe it's not better known these days, because I know that there are other issues of uh, Superman related stuff that I am hunting from from that same general era um, and also Batman that are very expensive now just simply because they have a Neil Adams cover. Neil Adams may not have anything to do with the interiors, but just because it has a Neil Adams cover, a lot of that stuff has become very expensive. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case with these. So it's funny that, you know, the the thing that they did to sell the issue way back then is now the thing that may be preventing people from from discovering it now, um, you know, cost. Um, I, I, that's just a half-baked theory, but <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I wonder. But, yeah, I need to look that up and see if that has ever been reprinted. You know, that storyline's been reprinted in total, because when I covered it, I don't think it had been, but hopefully it has been now. Uh, so anyway, by the end of the 60s, Andrew, uh, again, continuing to do war and romance stories, was then uh, working on a number of superhero books like Brave and the Bold, Superman, Lois Lane, Detective, and World's Finest, in addition to Wonder Woman and The Flash. And he began to pick up more and more work from Marvel Comics. Um, In 1971, he and Esposito did the art for both issues of writer Gary, is it Friedrich? Is that how you pronounce his name? That's how I pronounce it. I I don't know if that's how he pronounces it. He had a short-lived, and by short-lived, I mean two issues, of a black-and-white magazine called Hell Rider. I'd never heard of this before. Um, it was uh, a precursor to his, of course, much more famous Ghost Rider, which we, he would create for Marvel later on. Um, I'd never heard of this book before, and I looked it up. Um, I actually found scans of it online and, and was going through it. And I was curious because whatever I was reading to discover this mentions something about the women quickly coming out of their clothes or something to that effect. So it intrigued me. I was like, ooh, you know, Ross Andrew and nude women. I wonder what that looks like kind of thing. And they're not exactly nudes, 
but I mean, he does draw a, a really fine female figure. Um, but I was also, it's really funny if you get a chance to look at them and I, I can send you scans if you'd like Paul, you know, to check them out sometime. Um, it never really occurred to me until I was looking through those particular issues, how much his art style really to me reminded me a lot of Jim Mooney, who's another artist that I really like that I think is very underrated, especially for his stuff, you know, his latter day stuff on uh, Spider-Man, like spectacular Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Jim, I think he, he's a, uh, another one of these unknown artists that, uh, could get a little could could do with a little love and maybe we got to consider uh, covering him at some point. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to make that note right now. Jim Mooney, we need to we need to touch on that cuz yeah, when I came into actually, you know, actively collecting um Spider-Man with uh Roger Stern's run on Spectacular, he was the artist. And I've often wondered what other comic collectors, you know, especially Spider-Man collectors then and now think of that stuff because the art style is very different for Spider-Man. And I always, to this very day, still think of Jim Mooney. When you know, if somebody mentions Jim Mooney, the very first thing I think of is those Supergirl backup features that I would generally skip because I didn't really like the story or the art. And so it's funny that I really gravitated towards his stuff on spectacular spider-man i don't i don't know what the difference is but i really like that stuff a lot but anyway we're talking about ross andrew not jim mooney <laughs> <laughs> um so by mid uh, mid 1972 ross had actually made the switch entirely and was now working exclusively for marvel comics where he would remain for almost 10 Years And there he actually had a hand in ushering in the age of the Defenders with Marvel feature number one. And he was also the premier artist on uh, Marvel Team Up, the Spider-Man Team Up book for its first three issues. And while he worked on a variety of titles for Marvel from X-Men to Submariner, Doc Savage and China, the She-Devil, among you know others, uh, the work he'll probably and arguably will be best remembered for was his nearly unbroken five year run on amazing Spider-Man issues 125 through 185. Now that's not all inclusive, but I think he only missed, I didn't count, but I want to say like three, maybe four at most in a 61 issue run. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, And that run is out we'd uh, we take a moment here. We're not going to break down any individual issues, but just kind of you know talk about that run because I think you and I both have uh, very fond memories of that stuff. Yeah, well, he was you know that run was ongoing when I first started buying comics. Uh, you can mention in passing that uh, his actual first Spider-Man uh, exposure was doing a fill-in issue. Uh, apparently, John Romita Senior uh, had a wrist injury, and they thought they might need him to do a fill-in on, on Amazing Spider-Man. So he, he drew a story, you know, he drew a story, and then Romita got better. Uh, so they didn't need it, so it ended up being, you know, a, a uh, an extra story that they had, and it, it eventually was printed in Marvel Superheroes number 14 uh, back in 1968. Uh, and then that went on, or actually, I, I, he drew it in 1968. I, don't, I think it might have been printed. I think Marvel Superheroes 14 might have been a little later than that. Uh, right. But anyway, that was that was his first uh, printed uh, 
Spider-Man story. And I think, you know, from there, like you, men you mentioned, uh, the first three issues of Marvel Team-Up, uh, and I think, you know, perhaps they saw that he had an affinity for the character. Uh, and, you know, he, we, you, you talk about often, uh, you know, who drew the best version of a character and who is your signature artist for that character. Uh, for me, I think John Romita Sr. and Ross Andrew are, are neck and neck as to who the signature artist for Spider-Man is for me. Uh, I think a lot of people yeah. might add Sal Buscema to that list because he did such a prolific run on Spectacular Spider-Man. And then there's others who might put Mark, ba Mark Bagley in there. Uh, but for me, Ross Andrew, you know, because he was the regular artist when I first started buying comics, uh, and Spider-Man has always been my favorite character. Uh, you know, he, he has a very, very special place for me because of that. Uh, I, I was looking at his, his work and trying to think of how... How do I define his work as far, you know, the, what, where the, the quality is? Stylistically, I think he is one of the easier artists to uh, to identify. I think his, his facial drawings and, and his body movements have a certain style to them that, that make him easier to pick out from the crowd. Uh, and, you know, he, he, I think he draws a really good everyman. Uh, in the book we're going to cover today, we have one of those characters in there, uh, and and I I think it it does stand out. Like he, he you know not everybody looks like they're uh, photoshopped and and taken from the pages of, of magazines and everything. They, they look like normal people for the most part. And he also had a way of drawing an action sequence that was really really solid. Uh, his art looks nothing like the artist I'm going to compare him to right now. Uh, you'd never mix up the two. It's another one who's really easy to identify in the crowd. But Gene Colan always had, like, I've always said he has a real fluidity of mo movement in his in his drawings. Every, nobody looks like they're posed. Ross Andrew, in a very different style, had a similar quality to him. His, his movements, when he's drawing a battle scene and Spider-Man is jumping around and, and you know, there's punches being thrown and everything. Nobody looks like they're posed. They all actually look like they're in movement. They look natural in the movement that they, you know, in the pose they're in. And and I think that's huge. The other aspect of it is he, he was a stickler for details. Apparently, uh, you know, he was one of these artists who, you know, he lived in, in New York and would go to Manhattan and, and take pictures of skylines and different things yeah. so, so that he could put them in his drawings. So I, I think those two, those three aspects that I'm giving you really, to me, sum up why I think his work is of such a great quality. He could draw realistic looking people in a, you know, in a comic book venue, but real, you know, you could identify them as being real people. Uh, and he drew terrific action scenes and he was a stickler for details. So as long as you didn't stick him with an anchor that would, would erase his background work. You know, we we were in in good position to, to to put together a great book. Yeah, I mean, one of the many um, comic book related groups that uh, that I'm a part of on Facebook, I couldn't tell you which one it is. Somebody recently was posting about Andrew, and that's probably what put put him in my mind again. Honestly, was looking at these and talking about what you just said about him actually incorporating real New York into his drawings in Spider-Man. And, and the, the guy was trying to make the point of 
you know, maybe it wasn't as appreciated at the time that he was doing that, but, you know, he was doing like side by side comparisons with artwork versus like aerial photos of, you know, different venues around New York City and, and you know, the different boroughs. And you could see, you know, plain as day, you know, yep, here's Spider-Man swinging over this venue. And, you know, it was, you know, no attention is called to it. It's It's not made part of the story. It's you know, it's not mentioned in the captions or anything like that. It's just it's there. So it it was placing him in that real world environment, just you know, quietly and subtly. But it was doing it, and that that's really neat. You know, that he had that that dedication. It wasn't just generic square building in the background. It was you know Madison Square Garden or what have you. That that's really cool. I think that's really neat. Yeah, and totally. I. I, I I definitely wanted to go back to what you had said before, because, yeah, I, I'm with you. Um, if if someone had asked me, you know, who's like anytime I think of like certain characters, there's there's always an image that pops immediately into my my brain. So, like, I know who like my definitive Batman is or like my who my definitive Superman is. But if somebody had asked me, like, who's your definitive Spider-Man? I don't really know you know, who I would have thought of right away. But going through this and, and learning this about Andrew, I I really came to realize that, yeah, it, as you said, it's him and Ramita because the very first Spider-Man I can ever remember, like, the issue. Now, there's a cover. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 135. I don't remember a thing about the issue. I know I've read it and everything. Um, but I remember this was, it was like a notebook. I don't know if it was a trapper keeper necessarily, but there was a time where there was a whole series of, of like note, you know, like kids school notebooks and, and folders and stuff that were all different Marvel covers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, iconic Marvel or what have become oh, iconic yeah. Marvel cover, uh, covers of the 70s. I so am I know well I aware of that series <laughs> and, I, and owned most of them. Oh, okay. So I know I the Avengers seen... one by George Perez with the Squadron Supreme facing off against the Avengers. Uh, there was, uh, I'm trying to remember which Hulk issue it was. It was, it was Captain America was the Mad Bomb cover. Right. Um, there was an FF with like the thing was was large and in charge and the, like charging at the reader. I remember, yes, and I don't it, think it was, it was, the it was I believe, FF either. I believe that was one uh, that took place with the Inhumans, uh, and I think there are background photos among the other characters that are shown behind the thing. Right. Uh, I can, I'm, I'm tempted to say somewhere around uh, issue 150 or so. It was definitely was not 150, but somewhere in that range. Wasn't the Hulk one? Was it the one where he was he was cradling like a child in his arms and he's like in a cave or something? Was that the one? I could be wrong. That that maybe I'm not I'm not certain about the uh, the Hulk one. But I'm but sorry, I, sorry to have interrupted you. No, no, not at all. I, I'm glad you knew what I was talking about. But like I you know I, I remember seeing that cover. But as far as, like, the first issue, I can ever remember, like, picking it up and actually, like, reading it um, was an issue. It was 145. It's this great – it's actually – the cover on it is penciled by Gil Kane but inked by John Romita Sr. And it's a Ross Andrew issue, 
And I just, this one is burned into my memory because my, uh, at my grandparents' house, my uncles, you know, my older uncles, they had left behind their comics when, you know, when they would move out or whatever. And I can remember them having this stack of comics, like on the front porch, like as you'd go in, you know, into the house. And this was one of the comics that was always, it was like perpetually on the front porch, you know, in this stack of comics. And it was this great cover of the scorpion and he's smashing uh, a water tower with his tail and like flooding spider like spider-man's being washed away by this flood and it's just just such an iconic issue and of course you know ross andrews the one that that drew this and this was right uh i think it's just before the whole clone saga starts because it had um gwen stacy was back i don't know if i can't remember now if they knew she was a clone yet or what um you know, just all this drama and, and all this angst and everything from Spider-Man and, you know, what was going on. And, I mean, it's just, you know, threw you right into the story. And I just, you know, this one just really stuck with me. Um, just so much stuff going on in one issue, you know, between Spider-Man and his, his love life and Gwen Stacy and all of this, you know, the subplots that were going on. And then this just great epic fight with the scorpion which i don't i can't remember if i was even familiar with this may have been my first exposure or maybe i knew him from <clears throat> from the animated series i can't remember but yeah i mean this one has has long stuck with me so yeah i mean right from the get-go for me with spider-man uh you know ross andrew was there and for the for the purposes of information dump those marvel folders which the, uh, com yeah. the company was mead uh, the Fantastic Four issue was number 159. Uh, Avengers was 141. Hulk was 189. Captain was America, right. 193. He's, got, he's, got the, he's in a cave. With, I think that I might don't... be Jarella that he's holding. I'm ah, not sure. okay. I can't really see it closely enough. Uh, Thor is 229. So there were six of them. I didn't have the Thor one. I, I, I remember seeing it, but I did not have that. They, they In addition to them being folders, uh, they also had... Uh, uh, you know the notebooks with the, with them on the cover. Right, right. Are they recolored? Because I think, yeah, the Spider-Man one. Well, sort of. It's sort of recolored a little bit. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember now that I see it. I remember that Thor one because I always thought that was a really cool cover with him just stamping Mjolnir on the ground, and there's like lines and lightning and stuff coming off of it. That's really cool. Now, was there another series of these at some point that they did? Because I I thought that that classic cover, I couldn't quote you the, the issue number, but there's that issue right after Jarella died where the Hulk is like on a rampage. It's a it's an orange cover and it's an iconic Hulk and he's like, Hulk, destroy the world or some stupid thing like that. But wasn't that like on notebooks or something too? So maybe they did an, an, another wave of them or something? Or am I just not remembering that right? You know, I'm not sure. That I can't tell you. <laughs> no worries. Um, what other uh, what other books during that run uh, jumped out to you? Uh, for me, you know, I, I fell right into the trap uh, when when that's when that started. You know, there was the whole you know who is the uh, the jackal mystery. 
uh, right. you know, going on. And, and, and that had me enthralled. I couldn't wait to see, you know, when, when they were going to reveal who it was, uh, you know, that, that's as close as I came to the, to the revelation of, you know, who the green goblin was, uh, you know, you know, while I was reading it. Uh, and then, you know, you, there's the whole clone saga then, uh, which, which was a nice tidy little, you know, several issue story. And that was it. Uh, and, and, you know, many, many, many feel that it would be better if they had just left that alone at that point. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those jump out at me. The, the introduction of, of Tarantula uh, was, you know, at the time I, I, I didn't see him as a mord. I thought he was pretty cool with his little pointy shoes. Uh, you know, then, then, you know, there was also the, uh, the, the reemergence of, of the Green Goblin with Harry Osborn taking on the mantle. You know, so there was a lot of stuff going on there that, that totally had me, you know, riveted uh, during his run. And again, you know, it, it isn't, you know, there's a nostalgia aspect to it, but I do feel that I'm objective enough that I could sit back and, and look and, and rate things, you know, based on their actual quality and, you know, to some extent put nostalgia behind me. Uh, and I don't think I don't think my my being enamored with that run is based purely on on nostalgia. I think there's a reason why he had such a significant run on that book, and it's because they saw the quality that he was putting out and, and you know, the way he would tell stories. So, you know, it really does stand out. He also did, you know, and we're going to touch on this in a little while, too. He also did uh, the first five issues of Giant Size Spider-Man, uh, which was effectively a Marvel team-up Giant Size book, uh, you know, starting off with uh, Spider-Man and, and Dracula in the first issue. Uh, and then uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I think the second second issue, I think, was Master of Kung Fu. Uh, I'm missing one in, in my... Oh, there was a Doc Savage one, which I, I would like to cover one day, uh, which Doc Savage is another series that Ross Andrew drew. Uh, and, you know, the, the, all the characters kind of bear his stamp as far as their visuals go. Um, they, they did the Punisher and they did the Man-Thing. And then by issue six, it, it reprinted an old Spider-Man and Human Torch story. Uh, but the first five yep. issues, which were, you know, all original, uh, you know, were Did were you just do him. that off the top of your head? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing, dude. You, you nailed it. That, that's, I'm following along here, and that's, that's perfectly right. You nailed it. Uh, let's, you know what? I can't remember where I live, but, you know, this, this stuff is important. <laughs> uh, but, you know... The, the, the giant size books. Now he, you know, he obviously put his total stamp on giant size Spider-Man. All of the giant size books kind of have a warm place for me, and there is a nostalgia aspect to that, uh, including the ones that were purely, you know, reprint issues. Uh, I, I just love owning those giant size books, the ones that I have, and when I see, when I see ones that I don't have, no matter which series they were, uh, if they're reasonably priced, I pick them up. Uh, and surprisingly, right. a lot of them are going for significant money when I see them in comic book stores. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so I have to, you know, pick and choose when I buy them. But, you know, little by little, I've, I've re, re, reacquired a lot of those that I didn't have any longer. And, and I'm happy to have them. Uh, you know, but, but again, you know, he had, he had a big stamp on, on that particular uh, genre, which, you know, which I love very much. It's just amazing to me, you know, when when we're now in an era 
where so many superstar artists of today can't seem to find a regular schedule. You know, they're all over the place with, with their publishing. You know, they'll, they'll start a project and then they won't finish it. All these sorts of things that go on today, all that nonsense. And here's a guy that's the regular artist of Spider-Man. He's also occasionally doing other things while he's doing Spider-Man, you know, just other one-off issues of, of other titles like Doc Savage and Marvel Team-Up and Fantastic Four and what have you. And then interspersed with that, he's doing giant size issues, which is more pages of giant size Spider-Man and other projects he even finds time right in the middle of his run on Amazing Spider-Man to not only tackle giant size Spider-Man, but then also Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, you know, the big treasury size book. So, I mean, the guy's just amazing in the, the just sheer amount of work that he, you know, the workload that the guy had. And you'd never know it by the quality of, of what he put out that, you know, he was doing so much work. Cause you know, to me, there's never any corner, you know, it doesn't look like there were any corners cut. There's not any shoddiness, you know, and we've seen that before with some uh, books that we've looked at where it was very obvious, like, you know, this was, you know, some, something was going on and they had to cut some corners for time or whatever, you know, just to get it out there. And, I just don't recall ever seeing that with this run uh, on Spider-Man, you know, where I, I don't you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of any issue during this run. And I'm pretty familiar with this run. I, I have a real soft spot for this era because um, I collected a lot of these issues, uh, both as back issues. At one time or another, I had just about everything, you know, on this, this 61 issue list. Um, but also this is where I came in. Um, with Marvel Team-Up. So when I started collecting Spider-Man, you know, actually collect, you know, buying it off the rack and collecting it, I was collecting, you know, the new stuff, but then they were also reprinting stuff from this era in Marvel Team-Up, or excuse me, Marvel Tales, rather, Marvel Tales. And so, like, uh, the uh, Doc Ock and Hammerhead War, for example. I mean, that cover, and I'm pretty sure the Marvel Tales uh, reprints uh, took the cover, you know, used the same, because sometimes they would have new covers, but I'm pretty sure they used the same cover for issue, what was it, uh, 157 of Amazing Spider-Man, the one where Doc Ock is basically dangling Spider-Man over, you know, like they're both hanging out the side of a helicopter and, and Ock is, you know, dangling Spider-Man over the city. I'm almost positive that's the same cover that they used for the Marvel Tales reprint because it just struck me, you know, like, oh, oh wow, you know, that just looked awesome. Right. And, you know, and uh, yeah, at some point, you know, not today, but at some point, uh, I want to cover that uh, that three issue storyline uh, here on on Back to the Bins because I just I love that whole story. I mean, again, you know, to me this is kind of kind of where I came in. You know what I mean? Now, granted, it was it was a reprint. You know, it was something that had happened a long time ago, but to me it was all new and it was really exciting. And I just love the artwork uh, on those issues. So yeah, that's something I'd, I'd really like to look at at some point. The other thing that kind of, to me, bears a little mentioning on that is just, you know, how sometimes they, 
the storylines would get a little silly. Uh, you know, the whole Aunt May marrying Doc Ock, which is where I walked in the door. Uh, you know, when, when you look back on it, you know, Aunt May's got this wedding dress, you know, the white wedding dress on. She never even told Peter she was doing it. It's just, you know, it's crazy if you think about it. But, but it's so good. <laughs> and and part well, of the I'm... reason it's so good is the artwork. Then we get to the storyline that you touched on, and we have, you know, Hammerhead's ghost. And, it, yes. you know, it, it's, it's a little silly when you think about it, it from it a certain point of view. Oh my... but, but if you I give it the right it. respect in the artwork, it kind of carries through. And I think that's what, yep. you know, it was the combination of Jerry Conway, who who I have a great respect for what the work that he did. But he did border on silly sometimes. Uh, and, and, and Ross Andrew both, you know, taking potentially silly concepts and treating them with, you know, with love. And and it comes through as far as I'm concerned. And, and it's, you know, I, I, I wonder, I've, you know, I've met Jerry Conway. I've never asked him, you know, if I asked him about the Aunt May marrying Doc Ock or if I asked him about Hammerhead's ghost, you know, he might roll his eyes and say, oh, you know, whatever. Or he might say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that you love it. But either way, whether he, you know, whatever his response would be, I do love it. And I think it's, excuse me, I think it's just so cool. See, I... I hadn't really thought about that, but that would be, uh, again, really interesting to look at that, you know, with, with our eyes today, you know, as, as being grown men and, you know, supposedly, and, you know, looking back on this stuff, uh, you know, that was, you know, arguably written for, you know, for a much younger audience and everything and, and think, you know, see what we think of it today. You know, it does it come off more silly or, you know, does it still thrill us the way it did back then? Because, I just I remember, you know, that was one of the big things of that storyline that I really remember, especially the the visuals was Hammerhead's ghost. You know, here you're in the middle of this a completely different story that's going on, you know, with with Doc Ock romancing Aunt May and 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 Peter Parker's, you know, whole dilemma with that situation and then interspersed with this Doc Ock's being literally haunted. And I just remember that really being a, an awesome concept to me that you know, he, he keeps encountering this ghost of a character that, you know, I, I wasn't even familiar with. Something had happened in the past, and they, there was this whole history, and I just wanted to know more. And and I think it was also that, that sense of, like, in a strange way, like, like multiple genres, were, uh, you know, of comics were kind of melding at once. Because, you know, while I was never a, a big horror comics fan, you know, I always used to be really fascinated with the covers to a lot of the horror books, you know, especially the ones where Neil Adams would do the covers on them, you know, it would be like a creepy hand reaching out of a wall towards a child or something like that. And, you know, so then putting a ghost into this Spider-Man story just really, you know, that, that was cool to me. So yeah, I, I just, that stuff is so ingrained, but I, I'm glad you said though, you know, about the silly thing, because I, I, there was something I was tempted to mention before. And then I thought, well, I don't want to seem like, you know that we're we're trying to be down on uh, on Ross Andrew at all, but it, I think it does bear mentioning that they're not all gems. Um, I'm looking specifically at Amazing Spider-Man 138, um, potentially the greatest mort of all time, the Mind Worm. <laughs> well, he also did a Big Wheel, didn't he? And and the no, the Hypno Hustler. I'm not sure if it was him. Uh, I want to say that was late in the run. Let me look here. Um, 
Oh, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the Rocket Racer. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, Rocket Racer and Big Wheel, I think were were hand in hand, and I thought those were Rose yeah. Andrew. And yeah, then, yeah, they are. Yeah, that's. Uh, oh wow! I just opened up uh, one. What is this? One eighty-three, and it's Ross Andrew inked by Bob McCloud. Oh my God! This is beautiful. Wow. I haven't looked at this in a long time, but it is as goofy as it is. You know, it's got Rocket Racer, who is, yeah, one of the goofier concepts. He at least he looks awesome. Okay, Hypno Hustler was Frank Springer, so that's different. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew. Rocket Racer and Big Wheel. Uh, Yeah. You know, so I guess, you know, what we can say is Ross Andrew had a way of making silly look good. It, it is very silly, but yeah, it 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 does look good. I'm trying to think, what other? Well, there was also the kangaroo was early on in this run too. Uh, which, well, no, but, yeah, the, but the kangaroo was in, introduced in Spider-Man eighty-one, I think it was. So that would be a Romita. Ah, okay. I believe that's a Romita. And you know, it bears mentioning the very first issue uh, of uh, Andrew's run is our old favorite, uh, the Man Wolf. Oh yeah. Was it really? Because I thought that, for some reason, I thought that was Kane. Well, I mean, he's, is it? No, yeah, Ross Andrew, number 125. Now, I mean, I don't think he had anything to do with, like, creating the character. Or I'm just saying the, the first issue that he did is, uh, it, this may be a Kane cover. But, yeah, the interior is uh, is Andrew and John Romita and T. Mortalero? I don't, I'm not familiar with that name. I don't know that name offhand. Yeah, I had kind of forgotten about this chapter of the Man Wolf story, to be honest with you. So maybe this is something we want to look at later down the road. Uh, so many comics to cover, so little time. I think that was <laughs> the introduction of the Man Wolf. Now I'm just trying to think about it. I'm thinking those issues, 124 and 125. I think those were the first times that the character appeared. Is it? I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. I feel like. For as as big a Manwolf fan as I am, I feel like I should know this, and I you I, should. Um. Well, <laughs> I tell you what. Give me one second, and I can tell you because when I divested myself of my Amazing Spider-Man collection, I I did keep a handful. I, I kept all of the Roger Stern stuff, and I kept the Manwolf appearances. So. Let's see here. Amazing Spider-Man. Riveting podcast. Yeah, 124. Yeah, here we go. Oh, I do not have a 125. That sucks. But yeah, 124. He's busting through large and in charge on the cover. He's breaking in Jonah's window. I think that is the first appearance of him, right? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. So anyway... Go ahead. I feel like we're stealing time from the book that uh, that you uh, are bringing to the table here, Paul. So do you want to go ahead and uh, is that where we want to jump into this? Yeah, I think we'll jump into it. And, and I would just, you know, preamble to that. I would say, you know, originally we decided we were going to do two books. We we're going to do one of Ross Andrew with Marvel, one of Ross Andrew with DC. So that we kind of give you a little overview of his, uh, of his work that way. Uh, Scott being the... Uh, <laughs> how do I say this? Just being the the nostalgic person he is, picked a, a Ross Andrew book that he loves so much. Uh, and what I'll say is, we can do easily a whole episode on that book. 
And yes. And as yeah. we discussed it, we talked and talked a little bit, and we decided, you know what? Let's do a whole episode on that book. So what we're going to do is we're going to do one Marvel book right now, one one Spider-Man book, and I tried to pick one that would just kind of be random, you know, not to pick one that's a, a, a pivotal issue. Uh, and we're going to do that that that. DC book on a, at a later date at some point. So that's your tease on that. Uh, so we're only going to do one book today. And again, I didn't I didn't want to pick a seminal book so much as just an average book in the Ross Andrew run. And I picked Giant Size Spider-Man number five, where he teams up with the Man Thing. Uh, the story is titled Beware the Path of the Monster. It's written by Jerry Conway. It's penciled by Ross Andrew, inked by uh, Mike. Esposito, colored by Petra Goldberg. So, you know, the team kind of covers what we expect from the Spider-Man era of Ross Andrew. It's, you know, Jerry Conway, Ross Andrew, and Mike Esposito, which I think, you know, basically says what we wanted to say. Uh, the cover, however, is not by Ross Andrew. It's by Gil Kane, and it shows Spider-Man, the Man-Thing, man and the Lizard, in a, in a swamp, and the Man-Thing is at the foreground. He's giving Spider-Man a backhand, which is throwing him into uh, the water. And then on some land beyond the water is the Lizard standing there with his arm in the air. It says, the day you defy the Lizard Webhead is the day you die. Slay him, my pets. And then in the water where Spider-Man's about to land, there are four, I don't know if they're crocodiles or alligators. I'm not good enough to tell the difference between them. Uh... I'm and glad you said that because I don't know what's depicted here because I also do not know the difference between alligators and crocodiles. But I can tell you that one of the things that bugs me just a little bit about the story is the repeated mention of crocodiles in the Everglades. Other than theme parks, there are no crocodiles in the state of Florida. They are alligators in Florida. Okay, so we'll just assume for purposes of this that these are alligators, right? Uh, because, you know, that would make it more authentic. Uh, and just to, to comment on the cover, it is, it, it's very uh, cramped because there's a lot of action going on in a, in a tiny amount of space. Uh, so we have we have kind of a forced perspective to get them all into the frame together. Uh, but I feel like it works. It definitely made me interested in what was going to go on here and want to buy it. So for that purposes, I'm going to say I, I like this cover, despite the fact that I really don't think it's Kilkane's best. I'm going to read a quick uh, synopsis, or I'm going to read a synopsis from the Marvel Wiki, and then we'll talk a little bit about the story, but I really want to focus more on the art because of the purpose of this episode. And the synopsis is, while web-slinging through the city, Spider-Man realizes that he needs to get away from New York and sort out the state of his life. He happens to see news reports concerning the Man-Thing's activities in Florida and decides to try and convince J. Jonah Jameson to send Peter Parker out to Florida to try and get pictures of the monster. After convincing Jameson, Peter calls his old friend, Dr. Kurt Connors, who agrees to help him out since he lives in Florida. Next, Peter calls Mary Jane, who is excited that he called her, but disappointed when he tells her he's leaving town for a few days. She quickly hides the disappointment when Aunt Anna enters the room. Meanwhile, in Florida, Kurt Connors accidentally knocks over a beaker containing a chemical mixture, the clumsy fool, the gas from which causes him to once more turn into the lizard. He attacks Connors' wife before returning to the swamps. 
Once there, the lizard rants about making lizards the dominant life form on the planet. Upon seeing the man-thing, he realizes the creature poses a threat to his plans. Before leaving New York for Florida, Peter pays a visit to Gwen Stacy and apologizes for his behavior following her sudden resurrection. Meanwhile, in Florida, Edmund Armstead, a down-and-out biochemist who has become bankrupt due to re the recent recession, has come to the swamps in order to commit suicide. Before he can do that, he is saved by the man-thing, the bog-beast attracted to his emotions and the arrival of a huge alligator. Realizing that he's discovered the location of the man-thing, Armstead realizes the money-making potential and leaves the scene via his car. Elsewhere, Spider-Man has finally reached Florida, but before he can arrive at the Connor's home, he's suddenly attacked by the lizard. Meanwhile, with Martha Connor's help, Spider-Man is able to gain the upper hand against the creature and bind him with his webbing. With the lizard incapacitated, they debate on how best to deal with him. Elsewhere in the swamp, Edmund has been tracking the man-thing, figuring that, he can, that if he can somehow capture it, he can make money off the creature. He follows the bog-beast as it, as it and various lizards are drawn to the lizard's mental commands for aid. When the various amphibious creatures and man-thing arrive on the Connor's property, Spider-Man mistakenly attacks the man-thing, while the lizards free the lizard. When Spider-Man realizes what's going on, he attacks the lizard with an assist from the man-thing. Meanwhile, after Edmonds is informed that Connors and the lizard are one and the same, he has the doctor's wife take him to the lab where Edmonds uses his scientific knowledge to come up with a cure. Upon arriving in the middle of the battle, Edmonds almost drops the cure, but Spider-Man saves it from being spilt with his webbing and proceeds to use it on the lizard, who transforms back into Kurt Connors. With the mental control gone, the various lizards and man-thing return to the swamp. Edmonds tells all present that until he met the man-thing, he figured his life was over, but now he has been given a second thought and is going to give life a second chance. This book also reprints uh, Where Flies the Beetle from Spider-Man number 21, by the way, but that's not the focus of what we're covering today. <coughs> so story-wise, uh, much like Marvel Team-Up, I think Conway... Uh, does some things to kind of shortcut things and get it along uh, to the point where, you know, it's kind of silly. Uh, there's no way J. Jonah Jameson would just so quickly be willing to pay money to send Spider-Man or to send <laughs> Peter Parker to Florida to do that. And not only that, but he puts him in like the best hotel and gives him a spending account. There's no way that would happen, but he just wanted to get a quick little resolution of that. Uh, the way he has Connors turn into the lizard, but by just happening to drop the formula that made him into the lizard, that he would be that careless is just kind of silly. Um, and then some, <laughs> some of the things he does with this, you know, dude that's committing suicide, uh, you know, there's, there's too quick of a resolution to everything. Th those are the negatives of the story as far as I'm concerned. On the positive side, uh, I think he really did a good job of not only interweaving this with the current things that were going on in Spider-Man, but also giving us a lot of character moments. We have, uh, you know, a, a definitely, you know, we, we have we have Peter Parker's love life on parade here because we have uh, Betty Brant, Gwen Stacy, and Mary Jane Watson all focused on in this in this one story. Uh, and this is the point where basically the uh, Gwen Stacy clone that was created by the Jackal has reappeared in his life after Gwen had died back in issue 121. So there's a lot of confusion as to, you know, they don't know that she's a clone yet. Uh, and, you know, it, it's kind of cool that in this side story that, you know, he still manages to give a little bit of focus on that. 
uh, and doesn't go purely action, which is, you know, this is mostly an action story. Uh, okay, that said, uh, surprisingly, I really like the artwork in this book. I don't think it's necessarily Ross Andrew at his absolute best, and I don't want to be... I don't want to be blasting anyone, but I'm putting a lot of it on on Mike Esposito because there's points like where he draws Betty Brant's hair and it just looks terrible. And I think it's because of a lack of attention to detail in the inking. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's just like it seems like it's a little rushed there. Uh, the transformation from uh, the from Kurt Connors to the lizard, I think in penciling looks really cool. But I think the inking could have used a little bit more detail to it than it has. Uh, all that said, uh, this story, once again, you know, the action sequences are all really, really well put together. Uh, you know, you could feel the movement in them. You can follow panel to panel, the choreographing of it. Uh, it it's, and, and a lot of the panels have angles to them where, you know, they're, they're not typical. And, and I always appreciate that. And I try to point it out where there's atypical angles that are being, uh, shown uh the scene when when the uh the man thing first approaches the uh you know the chemist dude uh when when he's jumping away from the man thing it is a very atypical angle but it's really well done and you can you can feel the terror you can feel the movement it's just you know a terrific drawing uh and as as i mentioned about uh ross andrew having the ability to draw everyday people the way he draws this chemist is pretty cool it definitely you know looks he looks like an everyman, uh, but but then you know he draws him in a uh, there's like a uh, montage page, and you see him kind of through the years, and you see him aging and his hairline receding and things like that, and it's just really really well done. So overall, I'm enjoying the artwork in this very very much. Uh, curious as to what your thoughts are, Scott. Well, for one, I'm really, really glad that you picked this particular issue because I don't own it. I've never read it before, but this series, Giant Size Spider-Man, is actually on my want list right now. And I was trying to remember why, because like I said, I, I divested myself of just about all of my amazing Spider-Man not long ago, and I intend to divest myself of pretty much everything else I've got Spider-Man here in the near future. So I was trying to remember if I'm trying to get rid of Spider-Man, then why am I? Why is this on my want list? And I think it's because this bat, this book is actually completely misnomered. It really shouldn't be giant-sized Spider-Man. It should be giant-sized Marvel team-up because every single issue is a Spider-Man team-up with another person. You know, and you you gave the whole list. You know, Dracula and and you know Master Kung Fu and all that. Um, I have several issues of it already. I just don't have this particular one. So it was neat to kind of get, you know, this, this look at a book that hopefully, I, you know, eventually will fall into my lap. And uh, and I really, really dug it a lot. You know, as I said, you know, big Ross Andrew uh, fan, big Spider-Man fan, you know, his version of Spider-Man. Uh, I like Jerry Conway's writing a lot. And... While I'm not the biggest Man Thing fan in the world, um, I you know I do have a, a soft spot for swamp creatures, and I think uh, Man Thing is really well done in this, both story and art wise. He's much more Swamp Thing like, and I, I like Swamp Thing a lot more than I like Man Thing. So this doesn't do the you know the stereotypical you know what knows fear must burn at the touch of man. You know, there's none of that. He's just a big shambling 
swamp monster and and I really like that aspect of it. I thought that was really cool that he's he's there and he's you know cover build and everything but he's you know he's just kind of a monster in the book amongst all this other stuff that's happening and I think he works a lot better that way. He he's kind of the catalyst for getting Spider-Man to Florida and he's you know he's part of the story but he's not really the focus of the story and i, I kind of like that i like that it was much more about you know all this other stuff that's going on particularly the the lizard i i love the lizard i don't know why he's such a goofy character he's goofy in concept he's definitely goofy in look um but he's still just so damn cool i i don't know what it is about him but i i really like the whole thing with the lizard uh um, and you're right. I thought the same thing reading this. I'm like, you know, I wondered, okay, how is he going to become the lizard this time? Thinking, you know, cause he, the thing that I always thought was neat about Kirk Connors is that he doesn't want to be the lizard. And so sometimes they would really have to go to great lengths, you know, for why he was becoming the lizard again this time. And here it's, <laughs> Conway doesn't screw around. It's just, whoops, I dropped a B. Oh, no, I'm turning into the lizard. I'm, that's so ridiculous. But it's still just so much fun. And, I mean, that's really the, the, the big buzzword for this issue is it's just fun. I, I just really enjoyed it. I got a real kick out of the whole story. Um, it's it almost, it's almost um, you know, in, in the Bob Haney vein of not caring too much about the details. Let's just get to the action and i really like that i, I kind of respect that with it and man the arts I, i'll agree with you i don't think it's maybe the best representation we could have found for you know ross andrew and and mike esposito together but i think it's fantastic nonetheless and i really like uh i i think like with say like uh I remember the huge fervor there was over Todd McFarlane when, when McFarlane became the, the Spider-Man artist, um, you know, especially the, the early stuff where he really started to catch people's attention and, and you know, he's, he, his fame was starting to build and he was just kind of on fire and everybody was noting his, his Spider-Man stuff. And, you know, it started to pop up on t-shirts and posters and everything and there were always all these comments about, you know, the unique angles he was using and the unique, you know, body morphing that that Spider-Man, you know, was was had all these strange poses and everything as he would swing about the city and how groundbreaking and, and everything it was. And I'm thinking, well, you know, Ross Andrew had a lot of that sort of thing, too. It wasn't as far out and sometimes anatomically impossible as the McFarlane stuff. But he definitely had, you know, a, a real unique uh, way of playing with Spider-Man. And there's a, a shot here. Let's see if I can flip back to it now. Um, that to me has become one of those iconic Spider-Man things uh, that Ross Andrew would do with with the character. Now, I, oh, here it is. It is page of the story. It's page number 34. It's the last panel where. Spider-Man is coming in at a very weird angle and like kicking uh, man thing. It just, you know, the word balloon or the uh, sound effect says Trump as he kicks him. 
And I can remember seeing this same sort of angle. It, it's like this, like he's dropping in sideways from the sky kind of thing. And I just love it. You know, his, his, his arm is, you know, kind of at a, an unusual angle and everything, but it's just, it's different. It's not something you would see, you know, other artists do. It's, it's kind of an unusual angle. And I really like that, but he does a, a lot of these uh, unusual uh, you know, positionings and unusual angles with Spider-Man. There's a lot of stuff where Spider-Man looks uh, not weightless, but, you know, light, like he's like he's easily able to to bounce and move. He's very lithe. And I, I really like that. Um, he definitely has, you know, his own visual style and body language for how Spider-Man moves and swings and jumps and I, I, that's just really cool to me. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed this a lot. You know, not not the most intelligent uh, story in the world, but it was just plain fun. Which for you know for Spider Man, that's what I want. At the end of the day, I want Spider Man to be fun. And a lot of this the action sequences, uh, he he used the bleed of the uh, panel, the the page that you're talking about in particular. He did it like all over the place. If you see, you know, the 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 center uh, panel, which is really well done uh man thing's fist goes up up into the panel above it spider-man's knee does uh, man thing's foot actually is standing on the panel below it yeah uh, and then the one that you pointed to spider-man's arm goes into the uh into the panel but one arm goes into the panel above and one arm goes into the panel next to it uh which is something we've talked about in the past and it just but what it does it, it creates i think a subliminal feeling of the action flowing from one panel to yes. another uh, yeah. And I think that that's really effective when used correctly. If you overuse it, it's going to just get lost in the uh, in the translation. But if you just really use it at the right moments, and if you see, he he doesn't really do that unless it, unless it's an action shot for the most part. It's one way where he wants you to feel movement uh, when he does that. Uh, but I just I just think it's an interesting note too is that after that shot that you mentioned, because he he hits into the, the man thing and actually kind of knocks him. Uh, down and then there's a there's an editor's note special moss encrusted no prize to the true believer who can figure out why spidey didn't just ooze right through our mighty muck monster uh, <laughs> and and i think that's you know as he was editing the book he was like yeah you guys kind of effed up here so i'm just going to make it sound like yeah we know it's it is and you know you guys can explain it for us uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> rather than have them change the sequence or anything you know so i thought that was kind of cool well, uh, as there's I also that again, it doesn't it when when Spider-Man gets knocked in that it's almost like he's flipping. He's literally flipping out of one panel and into another. That's that's really neat. Yeah. There's also a really, really good splash page where uh, man thing grabs the lizard by the tail and is swinging him in the air. Uh, and <laughs> that panel in particular, if if. If you told me, you know, if you just showed me the penciling from that panel and said, identify the artist, I might have said Gil Kane. Yeah. Well, his, I think those two are, are very close. I'm trying to remember who followed Andrew. Was it Kane? On Spider-Man? Yeah. I think uh, Gil Kane preceded Andrew. Preceded uh, it, Okay. Yeah, because he, he did the uh, he did the death of Gwen Stacy. That was Gil Kane. Okay, 
Because I was thinking about like when Spider-Man went to the Savage Land and all of that. That was prior to this. Well, I mean, he went to the Savage Land, you know, an untold number of times. <laughs> but uh, one book that I know we covered on the show, I don't know if you were on that when we covered it, was uh, issues 103 and 104 of Spider-Man that take place in the Savage Land. Uh, and that is Gil Kane. And I remember, uh, you know, there's, there's a shot there in the Savage Land and Gwen Stacy is in a bikini. And I thought, you know, Gil yes. Kane can draw, Gil Kane yeah. can draw sexy women. Uh, yeah. But, I, you know, that stood out in my mind. But, you know, that, that run, after... John Romita Sr. came off the book, uh, you know, he, he kind of gave some sporadic uh, issues himself, you know, once he stopped being the regular artist. And Gil Kane would kind of step in. But Gil Kane wasn't really the everyday, you know, the every issue artist. He kind of came in and went, you know, came and left a little bit. And then also in that run, you had a, a point where they did a two-issue uh, reprint of Spectacular Spider-Man number one, the magazine-sized uh Spectacular Spider-Man. That was a black and white John Romita Sr. book, and they colored it and changed some of the panels to make it fit in with the current continuity. Uh, so, you know, I think that's the point when, when Romita was transitioning. I think from artist to art director. So he he didn't have quite the time to uh, to dedicate to the regular book anymore. Yeah, I'm looking here. Yeah, that's definitely what I was thinking of was uh, was that story in uh, 103, 104, where Spider-Man was in the Savage Land and he fights, I think he fights like a dinosaur and Gog. Kazar was in there. And yeah, that's what I was thinking of. For some reason, I, I had mentally placed that later than it actually is. It, it is well before this. But yeah, I, I, you know, while it's a completely different art team, you know, it's, it's Gil Kane and it looks like he's often with uh, Frank Giacoya as the, as his inker. I still, you know, I, I, to me, it's very, they're like kissing cousins, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Gil Kane, Frank Giacoya, uh, art style and, and Andrew and Esposito, they're, they're very, very close to each other in my mind. Um, well, the I thing, think the thing is, than... I love Gil Kane for his bold, dynamic storytelling. Uh, I love him for his panel layout. I love him for his covers. I mean, I, I love Gil Kane's art. Don't get me wrong, because I'm going to make this. It's going to sound like a criticism. There, there is a similarity with Ross Andrews' work, but I would say Ross Andrews' work was more refined. Gil Kane, there's there's a rough edge to Gil Kane's work, which is one of the things I do enjoy about it. But Ross Andrews' work does not have that rough edge. Ross Andrews' work is a little bit more uh, clean. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. But there are, there's King... definitely similarities there. I, I can see exactly what you're talking about. So, so we, we've you know we've connected him to Gil Kane. I connected him to Gene Colan in his action poses. Uh, you know. He, I think that's the way this is when you, when you get a, an artist that, that you can call, you know, really, really good or even great, you know, you're going to see some touches of other great artists in them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I do think that Andrew was one of the greats. That's, that's, you know, the reason that I really wanted to, you know, to look at his, his work here and, you know, do this focus on was, uh, that I do think he was a, a really great artist. And I worry, you know, as time goes on, you know, I, I don't know if I've told this story on this show. I know I told it to you, but uh, I was in a comic shop 
um, you know, this this is a while ago now, but I was in a comic shop and I was I was looking for a particular book, and asked the the clerk who was at the counter, um, you know, about the book. You know, do you have a copy of such and such? And he asked me something to the effect of, you know, was there anything special about it or whatever, you know? Um, and I said, well, you know, it's the first Jim Aparo Batman. And he said, oh, who's Jim Aparo? And it just killed me. I mean, it just killed my soul. Like, how how can you work in a in a comic shop and you you don't know who Jim Aparo is? And so I worry, you know, as time goes on and you know. The, the you know years stack up and a lot of these guys are not around anymore. You know, Ross Andrews not around anymore. That as you know the newer generations come in and they get interested in these characters and you know these universes and everything. That you know I, I want them to to know these people and discover these people and and not just think of, oh that's you know that's ancient history. You know, that's somebody for, you know, some fuddy duddy from way back in, you know, the sixties, seventies, eighties, whatever, you know, that, that has no impact on, you know, the character now or the, you know, what I'm looking at now, you know, I just, I, I, I hate to see these guys get forgotten over time. So that's, that's why I really like, you know, that we're doing these, these things is, you know, to hopefully shed a little bit of light and, you know, just some remembrance on, uh, you know, some great, creators of you know these comics that we love so much and uh you know hopefully bring a, a little bit of you know extra appreciation for them and maybe somebody will even discover them you know because we're talking about them you know and i want to do both you know the 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 well-knowns and uh, and you know the obscures the ones that may have already been forgotten i think that's that's to a large extent that's our motivation in the show in general is to you know i'm, I'm not going to give myself this this you know bold oh i'm such a wonderful person i'm here to help everybody else <laughs> but if nothing else just for us personally to revisit a lot of the old and great stuff and to learn more about a lot of that stuff and to you know to some sometimes dive into the stuff that's not so great and find out about that too uh, right you know to, to to kind of lean on the history of comics a little bit more than we uh we would do if we were fo just focused on the new stuff that's coming out. And I think if nothing else, we've made it clear over the years that we're not just focusing on the new stuff. Absolutely. In fact, Absolutely. we focus very little on the new stuff. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything else on this particular book? Or just, oh, you know, just uh, the whole thing with the lizard, uh, you know, dropping the, uh, or Kurt Connors dropping the thing. It's, it's similar to death losing his list of people who have to die. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. He, he ridiculous. would he would have a recreation of the formula or a similar formula to the one that turned him into uh, the, the lizard, and he'd and he'd leave it on the edge of his desk in a beaker. I mean, you know, and and then would be careless enough to knock it over. <laughs> Just ridiculous. But but you know, it's it's okay. I got to turn him into the, the the lizard, and I want to do it quickly. I don't want to waste story pages on it. I think that's really what it came down to. Now I didn't. I really didn't have anything specific on it. I, I liked. Uh, I like. You know, it, it makes. You know, it ties it to a time and it makes it very topical. But I liked that uh, when uh, Peter and Gwen are in his apartment, that they actually see uh, President Ford uh, on the TV. I thought that was that was just fun. You know, uh, like I say, it, it dates it and it ties it to a time. But I still thought that was really fun. Um, on page three of the story, the third panel, just because of the way it's colored. 
there's a guy that Man Thing is like belting, and he has a pith helmet flying off his head that is colored kind of silvery colored. He has a red shirt and blue blue jeans, and it, you know basically the way he's he's positioned and everything. Uh, you're just seeing the back of him. So with the pith helmet, the red long sleeve shirt, and the blue jeans, he could be Jay Garrick. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of neat. But no, I, I didn't have any specific notes. I, I just, I, I really just kind of went with the story and, and just loved it. I, I really thought it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it very much. I really liked the art. Um, I, I know that's. <laughs> Very simple. I, I always feel bad, and I know we've meant, said this a million times, but I always feel bad when it's something that I really, really like because then I feel like I don't really have that much to say other than I really, really liked it, as opposed to when it's something that we don't like, and then we go on and on about all the things that we didn't like about it. So I wish I had more to, to gush about, you know, that I that I liked it, but I, I really don't. I just I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, just a, a heck of a lot of fun, and I... Highly recommend picking it up if you can find it out there on the cheap because it's it's cool. Yeah, like I said earlier, the uh, giant size books are uh, are becoming more and more expensive. Yeah. So yeah, they really are. If, if you do want to look for them, you want to look for them soon. It makes me feel bad because I know that I have passed these things up for years. You know, before I got interested in in actually you know trying to collect more of them. I know I had seen them out there, you know, on the relative cheap and, and it just kept, you know, passing them by. And I, I can only think it's because I, it was just ignorance, honestly, because there's so many of them that are reprints and I didn't take the time to educate myself on, okay, what are the ones that are original content versus the ones that are reprints and, you know, and really seek them out. And as you say, now that they are on my list, some of them, and I'm trying to find them, I, I'm finding the same thing, that they are not inexpensive. Um, yeah, and the particular just, ones for now that I'm looking for, well, I, I'm missing like one giant size Fantastic Four issue that I want to get. But uh, most of the ones I'm, I'm looking for now are like giant size Tomb of Dracula, giant size Werewolf by Night, uh, those books. Totally understand what you're saying, because... Uh, not long ago, I uh, completed my run of the Defenders, and I wanted to be thorough. I wanted to not only have you know the Defenders proper, but I wanted to have you know all the lead up books, and also there were a number of annuals and giant size. I think there was only there's one a, annual on that. There's a couple of those giant size issues. There, I think there's four, are, four giant size. If, no, five giant size. If I remember yeah. right. Uh, but, and and they're uh, they're expensive because there's the yeah. uh, there's a Guardians of the Galaxy one there's a yep. uh, a Daredevil with Grandmaster uh, the first one is is a little is is like a a book with like three reprints in it yeah but there's one I want to say it's issue three I want to say that some something to do with the MCU some rumor or something has driven the price of that book sky high. And if I hadn't just gotten lucky and, and found it in a comic shop somewhere where they evidently don't know that it's now going for ridiculous bucks, I'd still be chasing it because, yeah, that book has gotten stupid expensive. And I'm not I'm not sure exactly why it has something to do with like Corvac or something. Yes. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just nuts. So, yeah, 
you know, some of these uh, giant size uh, are, are not easy to come by these days. I don't know what the Spider-Man ones go for. I, I honestly don't know, but I, I know I need I need two, four, and five. I think are the only ones I need. I have one and three, and I think I I, ha- I have a six or had a six, but that one's a reprint, so I don't need it anyway. But yeah. But anyway. So we should we should rate this book though. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't uh, sure if you wanted to do ratings on it yeah, or not. Yeah, why, why not? Okay. So I'm going to say the uh, the cover, as I said, it's a little bit of a mishmash. There's, there's a lot jammed in here. But for whatever reason, I still find it compelling despite uh, that. And, and as is often the case with Gil Kane, uh, it's inked but almost appears like it's – you know, when, when people ink Gil Kane, it almost feels like we're not going to really – ink it much we're just going to represent the pencils uh and i appreciate them not stepping on him but i always feel like they could clean it up just a little bit more uh so i'm going to say a b on the cover it's not gil kane at his best but it is compelling to me the story is silly and it gets to the point really quick at the expense of silliness uh but it also as i said intertwines with spider-man's life so I feel like it does a good job with that. Uh, so I'm going to say a B minus on the story. It's silly, but it, it was a lot of fun to read. Uh, and the artwork, it's not Ross Andrews' best because of uh, some of the, you know, the what I think are more inking weaknesses that I pointed out. But just the same, I think it's really a very well-paced story as far as the drawings go, as far as the storytelling goes. Uh, and I think the action is very dynamic, and I think, uh, you know, we pointed out some of that. So I'm going to say a B-plus on the uh, artwork, and overall I'm going to give the book a B-plus, uh, just citing on the fact that it was a lot of fun to read. I am trying to pull up here if... Here we go. My iPad's not being cooperative with me this morning. Um, I was trying to pull up if and where this has been reprinted at, because I'm wondering if this ever got the essentials treatment because, yep, it did. It was in essential Spider-Man number uh, volume seven. I would love to see this in black and white and see, you know, what I, what I would think of it in that. It actually says here it was also reprinted in something in the Spider-Man clone Genesis trade paperback. Hmm. I'd be curious to see that as well. Um, because I wonder what it would look like both black and white, but also maybe recolored. Because I <coughs> with, with it have to do with the coloring. It's not, there's nothing wrong with the coloring per se. It's just, it's a little, it's a little generic in the coloring. Um, I, I think it could be, it could benefit by maybe a, a little more, mood in the coloring if you know what i mean yeah no you know what i hadn't really taken notice of that but now that you're saying it i'm paging through it and thinking yes you're right i think some of these swamp scenes definitely could have used a little bit more uh just just a little bit something to to make them a little dreary or a little darker and and i think that would yeah be, i think that's that is the coloring there's there's a couple there's a couple of things where where the colors are a little brighter than they should be yeah that's, uh, and, and i'm not a big fan of muddy looking books but i think you know when you're drawing one that takes place in a swamp it, it's called for 
Yeah, it, it occurred to me because it, you open right to the front splash, and the very first thing that, that strikes me on the splash page, other than the fact that I, I think it's an incredible angle, I love the way Spider-Man is, you know, he's hanging down, you know, in the, the whole city. It, it's a very, what's the word, Vert, vertiguous uh, angle as you're looking down at the city, you know, from great height and everything, but the first thing that occurs to me is color. You know, it's just it's a mishmash of, of all these different colors that are not harmonious. They're, they're very contrasting. It's a very contrasting color palette. And a lot of, uh, I'm, you know, you said bright, bright's a good, a perfect word. It's bright, um, garish and kind of, kind of weird pastel type colors as well. That works all right for most of the early sequence of the book where, you know, it's daylight, he's in the city, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, but then as you switch scenes to, to different, uh, you know, to different venues and especially, you know, when we actually switch to, you know, the Florida Everglades, it is darker, but it's still not, it's not as moody as I think it needs to be. There's still a lot of panels where it's bright yellow, bright orange, bright blue. So yeah, I agree with you. I don't want it to be muddy, but I think it could really benefit of looking more, um, nighttime, more horror, um, you know, more of a, more, more like man thing looked, you know, the man thing books. I don't remember them being brightly, you know, garishly colored. I remember them being, you know, moody and, and that, so that's really what this needs. And, you know, color, I think we've really discovered over the years, you know, looking at these books that color really plays a large part in your perception of the artwork. And a lot of times it can really, damage the artwork or, or hurt the artwork because you're looking at it and going, oh, I just don't like how this looks. But there's been a lot of stuff I've seen where I've, I've thought that, but then I end up seeing the pencils or I see, you know, the black and white reprints. So I'm thinking, oh, I really, why didn't I like this? And it's because the color palette just wasn't right for the material. So I think that's a lot of what's going on here is that I love how Spider-Man looks. I love how the lizard looks. You know, the figure work is fine and the figure coloring is fine. It's a lot of it is the mood of the background. So, yeah. So, you know, points off for that. But again, that's that's not Andrew's fault. Um, you know, as far as the actual artwork, you know, Ross Andrew, I, I really dig it a lot. Um, I agree with you. I'm not sure that this is the best ink job I, I do think a lot of the you know the reason why this maybe isn't the best representation of uh you know of ross andrew that we could have found is because uh of the inks not being as uh i don't know tight whatever the word would be as i've seen them you know with with other andrew esposito projects but that said i still really like it uh, especially you know spider-man looks you know there's nothing wrong with spider-man throughout the issue he looks fantastic I, I love all the different angles the different poses uh he's just he really cuts a, a really dynamic figure with spider-man and you know so many of the of the angles and poses of him here just instantly take my mind back to uh, you know, Superman versus the amazing Spider-Man, which is just, you know, that's a book I've just read a million times. I, I love the artwork in that. And, you know, that's all Ross Andrew as well. So 
Ugh, it's it's tough on the grades with this one. I really dig the cover quite a bit. Um, you're right. Normally, I myself don't really like a, a cramped and, and jam-packed cover, you know. But I do like the cover on this one. Um, again, it's not Ross Andrews, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, but I do like it. I think it's really it's dynamic. It's eye-catching. Um, I think it's actually say an A minus on the cover. I really I think it's it's pretty sharp. It would get me to pick it up off the stands if I saw it. There's a lot going on, but it all works together. It's it's not conflicting. Um, the story, the story was just plain fun. It's a little dopey, but you know it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, I'll say a, I'll say a B on the story. And then the artwork again, I, I've seen better, um, but it is still really great. Um, I, I just I love the layouts, I love the angles, and and I love uh, Ross Andrews Spider Man. So. Artwork on this, I think I'm going to say, ah, goodness, it's it's difficult. I think I'll go a B on the art as well, because, you know, like you say, I've definitely seen better, um, but there's nothing wrong. I really think a lot of it has to do with the colors and the inks. I, I don't think it has anything to do with the, the pencils and the, and the layouts and the figure work and everything. So, so there you go. But overall... Um, overall, I think I'd actually go like an A on the book, um, just because of the fun factor. Uh, you know, again, I think it's slightly better than the, the sum of its parts. Uh, I had a hell of a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed it a lot. So, there you go. Cool. All right. So, I don't want to. You know, I'm tempted to say that's the end of part one of yeah, our it is. Uh, Ross Andrews thing. But, <laughs> but it, it I, no, I think we we gave a complete episode here, so I'm not going to even say it's part one. What I'm going to say is we will be revisiting Ross Andrew to at least look at that uh, that book that Scott was going to cover for DC. And so it's it's kind of a part two, but it's kind of an independent thing. And we're also at some point going to do an episode where we cover on the uh, cover the Hammerhead's ghost story. <laughs> yes. So, so hopefully you'll all look forward to that. And, uh, yeah. you know, if you have any good Ross Andrews stories or, you know, anything else you're interested in commenting on, please write into us. We'd be interested in hearing. So, yeah, what I what I tried to do with this, because I, I realized very quickly that not only between the two books that we wanted to cover would this be a mammoth episode. But again, uh, the, the man's body of work was much larger than I than I realized. And, and I quickly realized that, wow, this was really too much for one episode. So what I kind of tried to do was was find a point, you know, a logical point where we could kind of split it. And so when we revisit Ross Andrew in a later episode, we're going to be picking up from when he left Marvel and went back to DC. So that it'll, it'll be, you know, the latter part of his career working strictly at DC. So, so hopefully we, that makes some sort of sense. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that sometime soon, whenever that may be. But in the meanwhile, I, we <laughs> hope you all enjoyed this and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. 
Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.